Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Camp Hell and Awakey is a production of iHeartRadio. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the author and participants and do not necessarily represent those of iHeartMedia or its employees. Due to discussion of traumatic, sexual, and violent content, listener discretion is advised. That was the biggest disappointment of our lives. The committee decided that, yeah, these things are happening. We believe you, partially. And so what we're going to do is try to do some kind of compromise here because they didn't want to close the camp down. The deal was, well, Louis, you can't have boys at your home anymore. You really shouldn't do that. We're going to make you a different title, but otherwise we're going to leave you alone. And so they said, you can continue to be the director, but you can't be on the campus and you can't have anything to do with the kids. And otherwise nothing changed. Two weeks later, we understand he was back out there. Over a year after Roger Brin and Robert D'Agostino had reported the abuse at Anawaki, a deal had been made. No criminal charges were filed. Not even an official investigation by law enforcement was had. Louis Petter had been cleared of all charges under the stipulation that he have no future contact with the boys at Anawaki. The center would continue with little to no change in its operation. It was emotionally painful to me to see the lack of concern and reaction by the authorities who had the duty to do something about this. I I couldn't even mention the name Louis Petter for 10 years. My experience at Anawaki was so disillusioning, I just wanted to put it to my past. I never did volunteer work after that in my life, never, ever. Was the end of that. 
Shortly after the hearing, D'Agostino received a troubling call from the assistant attorney general who had represented the state, John Hinchy. He told me he was calling me from outside his office, a public phone. He was afraid to make the call from his office. And he said, look, they've stopped the hearing. I said, what? He said, yes, they're making a deal. And they're going to get you if they can. He said, they've decided that they're going to try and stop you from taking the Georgia bar. They're going to go after you hammer and tongue. They're getting a court order to seal the hearing documents. And that court order's in process now. If you can get a copy of the hearing and gave me the name of the printer and the address of the printer, if you get a copy of that, this will protect you. So what I did, I had no money. I mean, I was working for next to nothing. I was paying tuition. I was paying rent. Sometimes I didn't have enough money to eat. I ran a tab at a local restaurant because they, they trusted me that every time I'd get a paycheck, I'd even them up. So I called a friend of mine from Columbia College, where I'd graduated, named Jerry Miller, who was a trust baby, and he had lots of money. And I said, Jerry, I need $500, and I need it now. And I explained the situation, and Jerry said, give me your wiring instructions to your bank, which I had, and he said, I'm going to my bank now, and I will do the wire now. He went, he wired me the money, went into my account, took it out, gave it to Rose Higby, one of my fellow students. So Rose was able to get it. So I have it. Here it is, the copy of the transcript. And of course, there are all sorts of other things that happen. Over the past several weeks, we have received a number of very serious allegations concerning both the facility out there and a the number of individuals involved with it. It was just a form of their therapy. They were told to do it, and at the time, he was 14 and a half, 15 years old. They didn't know any better. I asked him, why are you letting this happen? Why are you covering up for Louis Better? He had no answers to that question. The thought of having an institution paid as a hospital to be such a despicable place and to do absolutely the contrary of what they should have done. I'm disturbed over the fact that something is still going on at Aniwaki. I'm Josh Thane, and this is Camp Hell, Aniwaki. Around the time of the hearing, Rin and D'Agostino had moved into an apartment together. One night, some time after the hearing had concluded, they received an unexpected visit from a patient at Aniwaki. One of the boys who was working with Louis Petter he came to my apartment, and Rose Higby was there and Roger Wren. And he started to tell me all the things that were going to do to me. One of the kids came in and said, Dr. Petter and his family uh, are going to hurt you. And I said, what are you talking about? And they said, well, they're going to hurt you. And I said, are you talking about physically? What, what other way? He, in every way. They were going to have sworn testimony that I abused the boys. Well, I got a little bit angry. The guy came in and said, I lied about you. And Bob ran him out of the house. Bob has a temper. I've only seen it once. There was a couch between him and I. I jumped over the couch to try and grab him. 
beat the crap out of him. And he went right through the screen door. Have you ever seen a rocket take off? If this was faster than a rocket, I'd never seen him operate. Bob has a lot of physical skills, but my soul and body, he was there. And although he didn't hurt the kid, I'm amazed that he didn't. He did run him out of the house, though. We were both scared. And I was very concerned. Anytime I left the home, I would turn the light on outside at night, and then I'd watch and wait for about 10 minutes. I was scared. Sometimes I went out the back door and went around the house to see if someone was hiding there. I felt paranoid on occasions. I thought somebody was out to get me. Well, we, we found out, of course, that somebody was out to get us, and it was them, and they were talking about what they were going to do to us, according to the kids. This unwanted visit was not the last Wren and D'Agostino would see from Anawaki. D'Agostino would later learn that someone had attempted to frame him for drug possession. There was some testimony that Petter had ordered drugs to be planted in my car. At that time, the car I had was a Land Rover. So the Land Rover was somehow locked, which is something I never did because I was hoping someone would steal the damn thing because it was such a bad car. But anyway, for one reason or another, it was locked, and they couldn't get into the car, so they put the drugs in the wheel well. I went off-roading that weekend afterwards, and it was a bumpy road, so someplace in the North Georgia mountains, there's this packet of drugs that fell out of my wheel well. We understood that someone had placed in Bob's Land Rover some cocaine in the spare tire, and that we were about to be raided for pushing drugs. And of course, that scared the dickens out of me when I heard that. Shortly after this incident, authorities showed up at the apartment looking for D'Agostino. The authorities had been tipped off, and the threat to get D'Agostino arrested proved true. Well, we had a couple police officers come to the house looking for him. And uh, we couldn't figure out what was going on. It was very unusual. They then swore a warrant for my arrest. So I was arrested for assault. I said, I'm just sorry I didn't quite get to do the battery. Bob recalls his day in court and how the judge reacted to his ordeal. I told him some of the backstory about what he was accusing me of doing. They didn't show up anyway. Judge says, Kate dismissed. Anna Wakey had managed to slip through the cracks of the Georgia legal system following their hearing in 1970. Petter, having stepped down as director, was replaced by a Mr. Charles Rampley. With Petter not in this role, there was nothing that could be charged against the Anawaki Foundation. In a letter from Chairman Donald Howe to the panel following the hearing, he states, quote, The board will of course scrutinize carefully and frequently the activities of this establishment, so that it seems to me this situation has been resolved in a satisfactory manner. Shortly after this deal was made to keep Petter off campus grounds, a new license was issued, allowing Anawaki to continue as a child-caring institution. Journalist Albert Edgen says this oversight and lack of investigation into child abuse was a sign of the times back then. It's fair to say that the ideas about victims and treatment and the whole panoply were I wouldn't say primitive, but they certainly weren't as developed as they are today. At the time, there was a tendency to not believe victims. 
much, much more acute than it is now. And it can be acute now. But the best way to describe it is that in the 1960s, there was abuse going on and people knew there was abuse going on. Somehow they turned their heads to it. But when it finally was litigated by the state in a uh, administrative way, what happened was that the victims, the targets of the abuse, were questioned, their backgrounds were brought out against them. These were children who were being treated for emotional troubles, and yet when they made these accusations, their emotional troubles were used as evidence that they were lying. The difference between then and now is that it was almost as if the assumption was that they were lying and they had to prove it. There was no a very, very little wiggle room given, very little accommodation, a very little thought about the idea that they may be telling the truth. Albert says that during this time, it would be hard for an administrator to even wrap their heads around the idea that this type of abuse between a man and children was even capable of happening. So think about now children who are being supervised by somebody who is just an abusive guy was having relationships, sexual relationships, with young boys. In the minds of an administrator of a health department in Georgia, he can't comprehend that. He wants to not believe that because he's so confused about the question of homosexuality in the first place that that doesn't compute with that guy. So, you have a hearing and you have troubled kids, and this has happened to them, and the guy who's been accused says, hey, come on, these kids are liars. They're pathological liars. I've got the evidence of it right here in my psychiatric files. That's the end of that. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up 
untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's hard to understand how something as serious as sexual abuse of minors could have slipped by local government in the 1970s. To give some context as to what led to this massive oversight, you have to look at what was going on in Georgia politics at the time. In 1970, the same year of the Anawake hearing, Jimmy Carter made the shift from state senator to governor of Georgia. Petter's confidant, Jim Parham, who had served as the director for DFACS for a number of years, would go on to play an integral role in Jimmy Carter's cabinet. This career opportunity for Parham would greatly affect the future of Anawake. Jimmy Carter ran for governor of Georgia on the idea that he was going to reorganize government. And when he did, when he got into the governor's office, the biggest part of that job, that promise, was to take all the health facilities, state health facilities, and to get them under one big organized umbrella. In order to do that, he appointed Parham to figure it out. Parham did figure it out. He did a good job in figuring it out, but it had to do with stepping on a lot of toes along the way. Every legislator, every member of the House, every member of the Senate had a stake in it because there are health departments in every county, there are hospitals. During Carter's time as Georgia governor, the number of government agencies dropped from over 300 to a consolidated 22 overall departments, with the heads of each reporting directly to the governor. While this may have streamlined the local government bureaucracy, it may have also left an opening for lack of oversight. One of the most controversial of these consolidations was the newly formed Department of Human Resources. It is under this department that every health and welfare organization in the state was lumped together. Shortly after the hearing regarding Anawake's license, Jim Parham was put in charge as the director of the Department of Family and Children's Services or DFACS, the same department which held said hearing. A year later, the department would be absorbed into the aforementioned Department of Human Resources, with Parham serving as its deputy commissioner. As second-in-command for this expansive department, Parham would have sway over a key factor, what organizations could qualify as a licensed medical facility. 
Parham had been instrumental in helping Petter get Anawaki accredited as a psychiatric hospital. That was pivotal for Anawaki because when they were accredited as a hospital, they became eligible for third-party insurance payments. And that made Anawaki a goldmine. The first correspondence regarding accrediting Anawaki as a licensed hospital appears to be a letter from the Comptroller General of Georgia to Lewis Petter from 1972. In it, Comptroller General Johnny Caldwell refers to a meeting with the staff of Anawaki in review of the treatment center. Caldwell provides a list of violations of the building which go against the requirements of the safety code for hospitals. In the trip report sheet sent to the then director of Anawaki, James Henry Evans, it states, The purpose of this visit was to determine whether or not this treatment center can be licensed as a psychiatric hospital. It appears doubtful that this can be done under current criteria for psychiatric hospitals. There is not a building at the site which in any way resembles a psychiatric institution. It appears that this organization may be serving a very useful purpose in rehabilitating wayward, delinquent, or emotionally disturbed boys but it is done in a completely uninstitutionalized setting in the relaxed atmosphere of a summer camp. This rejection would not be the end of Petter's attempt at getting this license. In a string of memos provided from the Georgia State Archives, we see Petter once again using his friends in high places to help move red tape. The documentation that I found that showed the relationship between Petter and Parham, the most troubling of that documentation had to do with memos that Parham had written to other administrators, administrators that worked for him at the Department of Human Resources at the time, basically pushing them to grant this hospital license. They had questions about it, and he wrote that basically without saying so, and they never do this in bureaucratic documents. But it was clear that the purpose of the document was to tell them, grant this guy this license. The string of memos to which Albert is referring to begins innocently enough, with a letter from a concerned teacher dating from November of 1972. This would begin a domino effect that would forever change the future of Anna Wakey. In the letter, she writes of a mentally handicapped student of hers who had trouble adapting to normal school environments but expressed an interest in outdoors and camping, whom she believed would be a perfect fit for Anawaki. The problem was the ever-growing cost of enrollment in the program. The student's family could simply not afford it. Over the next months would follow a back and forth of letters between the administration of Anawaki and a number of people from different health organizations. The state offered to pay the required rate for aid to families with dependent children. Administrator of Anawaki James Evans' response would be that the rate was so inadequate that the institution should not be included among any list of programs for whom these rates were established. In other words, it wasn't enough money. This was just the opportunity Petter needed to finally license Anawaki as a medical facility, and he would call on his friend Jim Parham to help make it happen. In a letter from 1973, Parham inquired if the Division of Mental Health would recommend that Anawaki be granted a provisional license as a special psychiatric hospital. And if so, what steps would be required to obtain said license? 
as their superior. He was a deputy director of the division of the department. He had written this to three bureaucrats who were his underlings. This parallel documentation that was in the state archives that shows that Petter was pressuring Parham to accelerate the process. In a reply to one of Parham's inquiries, Director of the Legal Services Unit writes, Assuming the facility can convince the various units making recommendations to the Quality Control Unit, the department presently has the legal authority to license the facility without any additional legislation. Anawaki was soon fast-tracked to receive their license to operate in the state of Georgia as a psychiatric hospital. In a memo regarding this matter, it is stated that, quote, If consideration is given to licensing this center, we believe it will be necessary to waive physical plant requirements and let the program of services be the determining factor. Basically, if the state of Georgia was going to give Anawaki a license, a special exemption would have to be made around any building requirements. Shortly after this, the Division of Mental Health wrote a glowing review of Anawaki to the Chief of the Standards and Licensing Unit, the department in charge of granting licenses. In March of 74, Anawaki was granted a six-month provisional license to operate as a state mental hospital. The special provision was made which ignored any violations of the building requirements of a medical hospital. Jim Parham followed up with a letter to Lewis Petter. It read, Dear Lewis, just a quick note to thank you for the tour. I was greatly impressed with your program and the attitudes of boys with whom I spoke. You and the staff deserve great credit for the job you are doing. If I could send more state kids, I certainly would. They all seem to be doing well. Again, thanks. Keep up the good work. As ever, Jim. Not five years after Lewis Petter and Anna Wakey were put on trial, Jim Parham was singing their praises. Parham's influence would help keep Anna Wakey in good standing and would later lead to a permanent license as a medical facility in the state of Georgia. Now, Anna Wakey could collect third-party payments from any of their patients' medical insurance essentially opening the floodgates to increased premiums, through which the Petter family stood to make millions. Parham, in the meantime, would continue working his way up the chain of government bodies, ultimately leading to his highest rank in government he would take just a few years later. When Carter ran for president, he said he was going to reorganize the federal government and he was going to do it in the same way that he had reorganized the state government, which he said had been so successful. And when he became president, he appointed Parham to oversee that effort. Parham, who was a poor boy who grew up in a cotton mill village in the city of Atlanta, went all the way from the cotton mill villages of Atlanta to Washington with Jimmy Carter. Anna Wakey had received their medical license and now had one of its biggest proponents in the White House serving under Jimmy Carter's cabinet. It seemed nothing would shut down the facility. By most accounts, Petter felt he was untouchable by the law. And at this point, he may as well have been.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Uh, thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the 70s progressed, Anna Wakey became more ingrained in Georgia and neighboring states' way of dealing with troubled youth. Wards of the state were now being sent there, and the program continued to devolve into something much harsher than when it initially began. One of the main structures on the Inawaki campus mentioned in the State Archives licensing documents is the E&O building. This was mentioned in an earlier episode, as it was formerly known among patients as the Quiet Room, a form of solitary confinement which was meant to break down patients upon their arrival, or for punishment when acting out. Evaluation and observation had progressed to being one of the cruelest aspects of Inawaki, one that every patient would be met with immediately upon arrival. Here's Mark Sublett, an Anawaki survivor. 
Your first arrival, you would go in and meet with a caseworker lady, and then that's when things kind of started turning a different way. They told me you would have to be processed in evaluation. So you would go to a place called the E&O unit. So you'd first be led into this little room, eight by eight. Anyway, they take you in and tell you you're going to have to take off all your clothes and they're going to have to evaluate you and observe you to make sure you're not going to harm yourself or do anything for 24 hours. You're removed of your clothes and you're giving a green robe, just like at the hospital. A little bit more concealing, but not much. And then you're put into a room and you're locked up for 48 hours. And that's how you're initially brought into the Anawaki system. Here's another survivor, Chris McKnight. The gentleman buzzed the door and they buzzed you in. And you walk into a small foyer with two chairs and a really small round table. The room is about 10 feet by eight feet. Two doors, both locked. The glass top, plexiglass top part of the door. So you go in there and the first thing they do is they tell you to strip. I had just turned nine, 10 days before this. I looked more like I was seven. I was really confused. And I sat down and said, no. And so the gentleman leaned over and in a much harsher voice said, you need to strip naked now or I'm gonna do it for you. So I started to get pretty scared. I was a very small child, so what did I do? I started to take off my clothes. I'm naked, and they rolled up my clothes, and they buzzed me through the other door with the group leader. And I look to my left, and there's a day room. And there's about 15 teenage boys with their clothes on. And a couple other older gentlemen group leaders, as it turned out, and they're all looking at me. And I'm standing there naked, and I just start to cry. I'd felt alone many times in my life, but this was like, I felt like on my own alone. This was like a whole nother kind of level of of being scared and frightened. So they walk you through the day room, which is a room about 40 feet by 40 feet. And you walk through it and you go through another door and immediately to your left is a bathroom and they tell you you have a one minute to take a shower and you take a quick shower and then they give you a robe a green robe tell you to put it on you walk out of the bathroom to your immediate left is a room they put you in it's a room about 12 feet by 8 feet with a mattress a blanket a pillow and a bible and that was it. High ceilings with a big plexiglass window at the top. And then they lock the door. And there you spend 24 hours and they bring you your meals. You are in the room by yourself. It's very degrading. I mean, I understand kind of like they want to break you down to build you up, but this was humiliation. This wasn't breaking you down to get to the root of maybe your problems or your issues or what's going on in your life. This was just straight up humiliation. There was no need to parade kids through a day room naked 
to enter a program like this. After the initial 24 to 48 hours of solitary confinement, patients were then put in a room that would be shared with anywhere from four to six other boys. Talking was still not permitted at any time, and exercise was very limited. The rest of the days were spent in silence, and patients had to ask permission for any type of movement, like going to the restroom. If allowed, you were to follow a yellow line painted on the floor and not permitted to stray from it. Mark Butler says that like the rest of the Anawaki program, every basic right, even wearing clothes, had to be earned. It takes you a while to earn the privileges of being able to wear regular clothes. So I don't remember how long I was in the robe for. I think a couple of weeks. Then they allowed me to have clothes. And pretty much the whole day, you cleaned. If you were real good, you got to go outside to this little, it was like a little triangular little courtroom, half the size of this room, that you can get a little bit of sun. And if you're good, every couple of days, they let you go out there for like 10 or 15 minutes. The amount of time a patient would stay in E&O could vary from weeks to months for some patients. Here's Stephen. He attended Anawaki in the mid-70s. I was probably in ENO for a couple of months, which was fairly standard. I might have been in a hair longer, but I think they wanted to get me outside. You know, I don't think they wanted to hold me much longer. Here's Chris McKnight again. So ENO for me turned out to be, I want to say, close to two and a half months. Other kids were in there shorter, other kids were in there longer. It really depended on you accepting your problems. And I finally realized that I was just gonna have to go along and say what they wanted to hear to get out of the ENO. I had never been in any sort of lockup. I mean, I'd heard from other kids about juvenile hall and that was like jail to me. And I felt like I was in jail. Putting a child in solitary confinement could wear on them mentally, sometimes causing mental breakdowns. I had long fingernails. I chewed my fingernails down to like a saw pattern. and was trying to scratch through my veins in my arm. I just, I literally wanted to die. My whole life had been taken from me. They don't really tell you when you get there, how the program works, when you're gonna get to go outside, when you're going to see other people. It was just a day-to-day, stay behind this line, don't ask questions, do your work. It was pretty intense. It's a big shock when you first leave home, and of course I was only 13, so you kind of start dawning on what's going to go on. You know, like, oh, I'm not going back home, and kind of start to have a breakdown. You have your own moments that you start realizing start figuring out what's happening. I remember this one kid who went crazy in that 24-hour confinement and wound up punching out the little glass window on the door and really messing up his hand pretty bad. And they had to restrain him. My second stay at Anawaki, it happened to another kid I witnessed. The kid just went crazy. But he had been in EO for months, and then I found out that he had been in EO for months after that, and they wound up shitting him off to another hospital 
he never left the ENO and he was at Anawaki for like nine months or so. Catherine Perkins is a psychology professor who has studied emotionally disturbed behavior in children extensively. She says this type of treatment can make a situation with a troubled teen go from bad to worse. Kids are kids, and most kids need engagement. They need human contact. They need warmth. If you are already vulnerable for emotional and mental health illness, if you already have that level of vulnerability, and then you're subjected to further abuse, you're just exacerbating a problem that was already there. By no means is anything good going to come out of that. I mean, you're just taking a bad situation and making it worse. Fred Knox was only a small child when he was admitted to Anawaki. It was during this initial processing that he realized the type of abuse that was about to take place. My number was K-12-20. I was there from August 26, 1982 to November 1st, 1985. I was 11. I was made to take off all my clothes and uh, I was told to put on this blue kind of greenish type robe. I couldn't wear any underwear. I couldn't uh, do anything and I was having people yell fresh meat. I seen me crying. Tears were just falling out of my eyes. I didn't know what I was doing. I was made to squat. I didn't know if I was going into jail or what. I, I, I had no idea. It was, it was a building called the ENO. It basically had about four different units. The men, the boys were on one side that were kind of split up with the bathroom, the offices in the middle, the rooms on the side. The middle was kind of cafeteria, two little tiny courtyards. The infirmary, or clinic, I guess as they called it, was connected to that. You know, you had to go through about two or three doors to get to the infirmary. There were locked doors almost like every 20, 30 feet. No phone to call anybody. For Fred, the abuse at Anawaki was coming from the patients as well. I was sexually molested by a student. They would do it when other people were supposedly sleeping. I mean, you know, it was almost kind of like if a counselor or group leader turned his cheek or turned his head the other way, you know, hey, what can I get away with? I had that, I guess, that thought process that that was a normal way of life. Fred remembers another patient who he experienced E&O with, who would later make national news. You might have heard his name mentioned, but his name was Stephen uh, Anthony Mobley. I guess in a wake, he messed him up pretty bad. He killed a uh, Domino's Pizza manager and shot him in the back of the head execution style. Arrested in 1991 in Gainesville, Georgia, Stephen Anthony Mobley became known in the crime world as the first defendant to use predisposition of genes as a defense for murder. He was executed on death row by lethal injection. I think in 2005 it was. Anawaki's program was becoming psychologically traumatizing for patients. The E&O was now the first experience of anyone in the program setting the bar for what would come later. Since Anawaki now had its medical license, it was free to expand its program. 
they would soon begin a girls' treatment center and move into other states, even other countries. Anawaki was now accepting patients each year by the hundreds and making a fortune doing so. And without any real oversight, the damage being done to these patients would only get worse. Next time on Camp Hell, Anawaki. Anawaki had been established for 16 years, but by 1980, the numbers were up above 1,600. It's like two different worlds, you know. There was the Anawaki outside and the, the Petter inside. At that time, they sent the toughest of the students to Florida. There was another guy that got bit by a rattlesnake when we were cutting out some, some trails. I think the air lifted him to Tallahassee. I saw other kids be abused by their peer group, and I saw a lot of kids being abused by group leaders. I mean, terribly so. Camp Hell Anna Wakey was created and hosted by Josh Thane with producer Miranda Hawkins and executive producers Alex Williams and Matt Frederick. The soundtrack was written and performed by Josh Thane and Adrian Barry. Archival footage provided by WSB and CBS News. Find us on Instagram at Camp Hell Pod. That's C-A-M-P-H-E-L-L-P-O-D. Educate yourself about the issue of child abuse and things that you should look for at the Darkness to Light website, d2l.org. That's d, the number two, l.org. Camp Hell and Awakey is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.